Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. I invite you to turn with me in Genesis 12 as we continue in a new series on the patriarchs from Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and sons. Abraham the patriarch is highly regarded and revered by billions, and rightly so, as the father of Judaism, Christianity, and even Islam. And so it's all the more sobering when we read in our passage tonight a great failure where he was guilty of lying, cowardice, his wife's compromise, even revealing likely idolatry and conformity to the world. What are we to make of the failures of our fathers and our mothers in the faith? And how do we deal with our own failings? Well, tonight we seek to discern a biblical response and gain insight into God's care for us in our weakness. Please follow as I read Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is God's word. Father, tonight we would ask, that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My wife and I both have wonderful, loving, God-fearing fathers whom we highly esteem. We are blessed that they are both still alive and have godly wisdom and influence on our, our children. However, both are flawed men, and we can recall their failures that were quite hurtful at the time and still painful to recall. As a father of seven myself, with my oldest turning 25 this year, I've accumulated my own share of failures, of losing my temper, neglecting important duties, failing to be consistent with 
family devotions, falsely accusing a child on occasion, and patience, among many other things. I pray that the Lord will strengthen me in my own weaknesses and bless my children with a vibrant and living faith despite my many shortcomings. It seems in recent years we've grown far too familiar with high-profile Christian leaders committing grievous public sins. Their failures hurt the reputation of the church and harm the flock of God. And yet we can be grateful when we come to Scripture and gain a, a humble perspective that the Bible very plainly shows us the failings of our forefathers. Adam and Eve led the human race into sin. Noah got drunk. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Moses committed murder and failed to honor the Lord as holy before the people. And in our passage, the patriarch Abram commits a terrible sin against his wife out of self-protection and fails to trust the Lord his God. The God who had just called him, had called Abram to follow him, to move to the land of Canaan, and have proven faithful to deliver him and promise him great blessing. And so our passage tonight follows a familiar biblical theme, that though we might be found faithless, God proves himself faithful. First, let's consider the failings of Abraham. Our passage opens in a crisis. There is a severe famine in the land. And though the passage is not explicitly, it's not explicit that Abraham is disobeying God by going to Egypt, this passage does follow immediately after God's call for him to go from Ur to Canaan, the promised land where he would, where all of his descendants would dwell. And the text does not tell us that Abram consulted the Lord or received any specific instructions from him, but out of self-preservation, he takes his wife and his household down to Egypt, the place where his great-grandsons will also go generations later uh, during their own famine in their day. And God, where God will ordain the events to reconcile the fractured family of Jacob in the days when Joseph served at the right hand of Pharaoh. The hint in the passage that Abram was following a worldly mindset as he went to Egypt is by the fact that he instructs his wife Sarai to, be, to claim that she is his sister, to carry on a ruse before the Egyptians. For some reason, Abram did not feel the need to deceive people in the land of Canaan, but in the land of Egypt, he fears for his own life, because Sarai is a beautiful woman. It's a fact from history that wife-stealing was not that uncommon in the ancient world, women being scarce as it was, and a beautiful woman even rarer. It was not uncommon for men to murder, to practice the practice of removing a husband, to avoid the sin of adultery, and to avoid the man to commit retribution. Egypt had a reputation for lawlessness. And Abram was aware that he was vulnerable, driven out of Canaan by a famine, that he feared that though he had some wealth, some power, he was in no position to defend himself should someone more powerful set 
his sights upon his wife, Sarai. So Abram had reason to fear. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and all of his belongings and goes down to Egypt in self-preservation. He instructs Sarai to lie for him out of his own self-protection and his possible enrichment. He figures they could play the ruse that she is his sister, not putting Abram at risk, but but in a position of power as a brother to negotiate the terms should wealthy suitors come along to offer him gifts and sums of money, seeking Sarah's hand in marriage. Abram is an opportunist. He trusted in his own ability to negotiate his way out. He figured he could buy time, perhaps pit suitors against one another, and leave and return to Canaan before Sarah was claimed by another. Abraham's intent is revealed in his words to his wife. Say you are my sister, that it might go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. We don't know how Sarai responded, although she obeyed her husband's instructions. Perhaps she thought he was reasonable and in a loving way conceded to do this to protect him. There is no record of her protest or arguing with him, though that does show up later in the narrative. Perhaps she was happy to join him in the ruse, hoping to gain riches by their shared duplicity. But perhaps she felt very vulnerable and was fearful, wondering what would happen if their little game failed. And in the end, such fears proved true. Abram failed to protect his wife. He made her vulnerable, protecting himself, enriching himself. He asked her to join in a lie and led her to a place where her security was at risk. Abram also failed to demonstrate his faith in God, who had called him to leave his homeland, to leave behind the safety of his family, to go to a strange land with both great resources and grave dangers. Abram follows in the footsteps of his forefather, Adam. God had given our first father instructions to care for the garden, what to eat, and a prohibition not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God blesses Adam with a wife, a helper, a fellow image bearer that they might tend the garden, might produce children. And then the day came when the crafty one, the serpent, entered the garden to tempt the woman, the more vulnerable of the two, the woman being smaller, physically weaker, having been created second, having only heard the prohibition of God secondhand through her husband. And the serpent preys upon her weakness, twisting the words of God making God out to be a miser for forbidding them to eat from the tree of knowledge, planting in her mind the lie that somehow God was holding out on them, and finally flat out lying 
insisting that if she ate from the forbidden fruit, she would be like God, knowing good and evil. Where was Adam, her protector? He was right there. Genesis 3, 6 says that Adam was with her. Why was Adam silent? Why did Adam not protect his wife? Why did he not stand firm with what God had said to him? Sadly, Adam too was lured and deceived by the twisting words of the evil one, the beauty of the fruit and the desire to be like God. Adam failed to protect his wife. Abram failed to protect his wife, and this would not be the only time. Like Adam, Abram would listen to his wife's false reasoning later when she suggested to him that he take another wife to help God along to bring forth a child through a surrogate mother. This was according to worldly wisdom, common in that time, but not according to God's wisdom. And the result was misery, consternation in Abram's house, just as Adam's failure brought curse and misery to the entire human race. Abram told his wife to say that she was a sister, and this was partly true. She was his half-sister, the daughter of his father Terah, but of another mother, as he later tells King Abimelech. A half-truth is still a lie. When we withhold the whole truth with unrighteous intent, when we deceive others out of self-protection, self-advancement, to impress others or by other intent, Abram failed to speak the truth. He failed to trust in the Lord his God. He feared man who can kill the body rather than fear God who alone can deliver us from death. Muslims insist that Abram did not sin. Nor did Adam, or Moses, or David, or any of the other prophets down through Jesus and even their own prophet Muhammad. In the Muslim mind, to be religious and righteous before God means that one is perfect and sinless, demonstrating great piety and devotion. The Bible does not operate on that premise. Scripture candidly exposes the great flaws of our patriarchs, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and the other brothers, Moses, Aaron, judges, the judges, David, Solomon, the kings of Israel, and more. The Bible does not paint a rosy red picture of great role models whom we should strive to emulate in an effort of works righteousness. In every case but one, the Bible presents very flawed men and women who failed to live up to God's righteous standards. But God, rather than condemn his people as they justly deserve, directs them to trust in his own redemptive work, which he would provide 
through his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone lived the perfect life, who died the righteous death to pay the penalty that you and I deserve, sacrificing himself, dying in our place that we might be forgiven and restored to live before him. Secondly, let us consider the fallout. God's people may be forgiven, but we often bear the consequences for our sin. And so it was the case with Abram, who would suffer fallout from his own deceptive ruse and failure to protect his wife and trust the Lord. Suppose his ruse went well for a while. The Egyptians thought that Sarai was his sister. Men may have bargained for her, made offers for her, and he faithfully fended them off, demanding a higher bid. He would just keep on negotiating until he was safely out of Egypt. But then the unthinkable happened. His plan backfired. The man who does not negotiate came calling. Verses 14 and 15 say that the Egyptians saw that Sarai was beautiful and praised her to Pharaoh. And like men of power are wont to do, Pharaoh took what he wanted. What was Abram to do? Powerless to protest. Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's house. Abram was richly compensated with sheep and oxen, donkeys, servants, and camels. And some may presume all things were fine and no violation fell upon Sarai. But verse 19 says that Pharaoh chastises Abram, saying, Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? The plain reading of the text would indicate that Pharaoh did what most men do when they take a woman for a wife. Later, when Abram tries the same deception with Abimelech, the text is clear that he did not approach Sarah. When she was taken into his household, Isaac is born soon thereafter, and the Lord ensures that there is no question that Abraham is the father. In the case of Pharaoh, Abram's failure to protect his wife results in his wife's disgrace and dishonor. Shame and disgrace fall upon the patriarch and matriarch of Israel. They foreshadow the sorrow of their descendants who would suffer similar indignities and abuses as slaves of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Abram's descendant, the greatest king of Israel, David, would fail on several occasions and suffer the fallout, the severe consequences for his sin. He commits the sins of adultery and murder. And after which David humbles himself and repents in response to Nathan the prophet's confrontation by way of a parable. The Lord forgives David. He will not die for his sin. And yet Nathan warns David of the consequences, that the sword will not depart from his household. David's sinful neglect and abuse of power sows seeds of destruction in his sons, one of whom will rise up to overthrow his father in a coup, will commit acts of dishonor and disgrace. Absalom will die a sinner's death in the severe judgment of God, and David will grieve and mourn for his rebellious son. 
as he struggles to keep his household together as it unravels before him. Sin is twisted. It corrupts and taints everything. Like the drop of a dye into a pitcher of water, once it makes contact, you cannot stop its spread. The warnings we have from the lives of the patriarchs show us the deceitful nature of sin. We are reminded that we cannot negotiate our way around the consequences of our sin when we compromise with God's laws and his promises. When we choose disobedience, we reap what we sow and bear the painful brunt of our folly and usually hurt others for our selfishness. So where do we go with that? Well, thankfully, we can turn to the faithfulness of God. Verse 17 is the beautiful turning point of our passage. Abram is stuck. Sarai is trapped in the house of Pharaoh, illegally married to a pagan man. What had become of God's promises? How will Abram and Sarai build the family of God now under these impossible circumstances? We can just imagine their despair and hopelessness in their hearts. In the midst of this tragic folly, we read these words. But the Lord. Over 30 times in Scripture, we read that phrase, but God, but the Lord, but God remembered Noah. Jacob, in his protest to Laban, repeatedly refers to but God who delivered him from Laban's trickery and deceit. Joseph said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. When Saul was tracking down David in the wilderness, it says, but God did not give David into his hands. Peter says to his audience next three, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Paul will write in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In the case of Abram's deliverance, our text reads, but the Lord. The Lord who is not blind, who is not deaf, who is not unaware of the trials of his people or their circumstances. Yes, God allows things to happen, but he will not allow his plans to be thwarted. Not by the oppressive ego of Pharaoh or even the cowardly failings of Father Abraham. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai. This unholy union between pagan Pharaoh and the matriarch of Israel would not continue. The Lord unleashes his unmitigated wrath on earth's mightiest ruler. This punishment unmistakably foreshadows the later plagues. Gent sent through Moses that he might deliver Israel from their bondage. Abram's Pharaoh 
had more sense than Moses' Pharaoh. The Pharaoh of Genesis 12 feels the pain of these plagues and immediately calls Abram when discovering that Sarai is his wife. Pharaoh had the power to punish Abram. But fearing the Lord, he sent Abram and Sarai packing. He gives them an escort for good measure, giving orders to his men that they depart unharmed with all their possessions. And so like their descendants several hundred years later, Abram and Sarai will plunder the Egyptians. There is nothing virtuous or heroic about Abram in this account. God alone is the hero. God demonstrates his faithfulness to his promises. God is determined to bless Abram despite the patriarch's folly, worldliness, failure to tell the truth, failure to trust in his poor integrity. God humbles Abram, as he will many other of our faithful leaders throughout Scripture. He has Abram in a place that only God can deliver him. And this is not the end of the story for Abram. He grows. He matures. He courageously leads a rescue mission for Lot and company who were carried off by the northern kings. He believed God at his word, making covenant with God in chapters 15 and 17. And though he will slip back into worldly ways, taking Hagar as a surrogate wife, deceiving, pulling the same ruse again with King Abimelech, Abram will go on to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah and pass the test of faith when sacrificing his only son Isaac on Mount Moriah. We have to be grateful that God does not leave us where he started with us. We have much worldliness that needs to be cleansed, much idolatry in our hearts that needs to be pruned. Our God is patient with us, grows us, fashioning us in trial and opportunity to conform us into the image of Christ. And he is determined to teach us over and over again what it means to treasure Christ more than the riches of this world. Hebrews 11 is called the Great Hall of Faith. We just studied it in my science class this morning. And it's remarkable as you read this list of Old Testament figures, all of whom were flawed. Included in that list are Samson and Jephthah, not exactly paragons of virtue. Yet, time after time, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, the people of God conquer kingdoms, shut the mouths of lions, endure and persevere. And the author of Hebrews emphasizes the positives, as though that's how God sees them, perfected in Christ. And it's in Christ that God sees you and I, cleansed and holy and made righteous and perfect because of the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may we hold on to our faith and our hope. So I read this fitting summary of Abraham from Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place 
but he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Praise be to the Lord our God. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we are so grateful. So grateful for your faithfulness to us. Grateful for the righteousness you grant us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful for your patience with us. That though our failings may be many, your faithfulness endures from generation to generation. Help us to grow as people of faith. Keeping our eyes fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.